Welcome to the Art Stays Here Coalition's new podcast series, Culture Crisis Conversations. In the series, we'll hear from folks affected by the ongoing arts, music, and cultural displacement that's happening across the country. These include artists, musicians, and other creatives, as well as developers, policymakers, funders, operators, arts and cultural leaders, and more. They will share their stories and their own voices to best communicate the impact that cultural displacement has had on individuals and communities and how we can choose to make it stop. Welcome to the Art Stays Here podcast series, Culture Crisis Conversations. My name's Amy Bennett. I am a volunteer member here at Art Stays Here. And today we are talking with our friends at Mass Creative, specifically its executive director, Emily Ruddick. Hey, Amy. Thanks for having me. Welcome, welcome. And also... Kelsey Rode, Director of External Relations. Great. Uh, we have our friends here from uh, Mass Creative. So um, why don't we first... Um, get through some of the stuff about like what is mass creative how long has it been around who does it serve you know pretend no one knows all right this is this is i love talking about this so um you know we have been around for a decade so in about 2012 2013 um you know, if you if you think back to that moment in Massachusetts, it's after the Great Recession in 08. And there was a moment where just state revenues were in the pits and public support, specifically state funding for arts, culture and creativity had gotten to a really horrible level. So it was at about eight million dollars um, in the state budget for investments in the arts and cultural community. And a group of leaders got together and said, this isn't gonna change unless there is uh, a group that is really focused on um, uniting folks in advocacy and making sure that elected officials are considering the needs of the creative sector when they are making decisions. And so we were founded to do just that. And so we are a statewide advocacy and organizing uh, group. We really, we do two things that we think we do really well. Uh, the first one is we train and share information. We believe that the key to stronger advocacy is making sure that people feel confident and they feel they know how to move through the process and that makes them effective. And then the second thing that we do is we really work to push forward common sense public policy. So bills and looking at state funding that are going to make for a more inclusive and equitable creative sector that everyone benefits from in Massachusetts. And can you tell us a little bit about the staff and kind of your organization, how it's all built together? Yeah, absolutely. So so we're a small but mighty team. There are three folks. That includes me as executive director. Um, and then we have Kelsey, who you met a moment ago. And Kelsey is our director of external relations. Um, and Kelsey is part of the three folks in our, in our team. She came out of the state house, she worked for uh, Rep Keefe, who is a state rep out of Worcester. And Rep Keefe is also, she's an artist, right? 
She is an artist. She's a printmaker. She's also one of the lead sponsors on one of our bills and has historically been the lead sponsor on the public art bill. Yeah, oh, that's right. we'll get into that shortly. She's an amazing arts champion. But so Kelsey came to us and um, really with this like amazing insider knowledge of how the building works, the building, as people say, but how legislation happens and how sort of statewide politics work. And her work is really focused on communications and fundraising. Hmm. And then bringing in that piece, right, about, you know, making sure that we're being as effective as we can, right? And yeah. building that strategy. And then the other person in our um, trio is this amazing, our director of organizing. She's so fantastic, Richeline Cadet. Um, Richeline came to Mass Creative after a run as the deputy campaign manager for Senator Liz Miranda hmm. and also as a regional organizing leader for the Fair Share Amendment, that ballot question, which was about about making sure that folks who were making a lot of money were paying their fair share. So Richlene is like a dyed-in-the-wool activist and organizer and understands political organizing. Um, And so as our director of organizing, she really heads up both making sure that folks are mobilized and know how to make sure their voices are heard. And then she also um, heads up all of our training programs. So again, it's really important at Mass Creative that people feel like they have access to the tips, the tricks, and the moments to build their skills as an advocate. And so she directs all of that work. And you do that work um, at the Channel Building. We do, yeah. So we are. Um, we have, for many years, been in the Midway Studios, which is in and of itself a really exciting property, right? It's a artist-owned cooperative, and the first floor is all arts businesses and nonprofits. So we are part of a intentional group, a co-working group called the Cultural Equity Incubator. Um, and there's about 10 of us, right, Kelsey? 10 organizations? Yeah, that's correct. And they're multidisciplinary. Right. And they live at the intersection of social justice and art. So um, the you know some of those groups include, and I will forget some, so I apologize in advance, Arts Connect International, Dunamis, which is an amazing professional development organization for um, arts administrators of color, Dance Organica, which is a dance company, Abilities Dance, which is another dance company um, featuring and, and led by um, dancers within, within the disability community, um, a Midday Movement, which is another dance company, um, Arts and Business Council and Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. And the flavor continues. Oh, right. Another yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's a bunch of us. And so what's really great is that just because literally we're sitting next to each other, it's um, we have found that there are points of intersection in our work and um, in our shared collective systems change work, which is fantastic. That's great. It's great to be surrounded by so many different creatives, especially in a diverse way, like dif- different people doing different things. I'm a little little jealous. How about your board and advisory? What, what, what do you have? Yeah, so we have a board of about, I think we're at 27 board members. And, you know, I think one of the things that's really important about Mass Creative is that our lens is, you know, we're a statewide organization and we really are interested in advancing the creative sector. And we all know that the creative sector has a lot of different parts to it. And so there's nonprofit organizations, there are local for profit businesses, there are individual artists. There are arts administrators, there are technicians, there are designers, there are um, 
creative entrepreneurs, uh, they're community artists, like on and on, the list goes on. And so we really intentionally, we have a board that is made up of folks from across Massachusetts that represent all of those different identities and interests. In fact, we even have uh, one of our longest serving board members is actually just an incredible arts donor and just believes that art has so much power to change lives. Um, so we have that, you know, that individual philanthropic perspective as well. I'd like to connect that person with Christina, who's on the Art Stays Here Coalition, <laughs> because uh, one of the things that uh, is a theme through what Christina talks about, you know, I talk about arts armies and systems and other things, and she talks about trying to educate and amplify the value of arts and artists to communities, neighborhoods, people, mental health, wellness, just that like, it's a need. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like that person, they might be simpatico. Yeah, true. I mean, you know, the thing, a former board member once asked me, he said, Emily, when we have visitors come in to visit us from out of town. We take them to the ballet. We take them to see public art in Boston Common. Um, we take them to see a play. We don't take them to like look at the Freedom infrastructure change oh. challenges <laughs> of Boston, right? And so, you know, I think that that piece around how the creative sector, which oftentimes it's easy to forget how essential it is to the way we live and to the quality of life we enjoy, um, but that the creative sector is uh, just underwriting all of that. And however you decide if it's through consuming it through traditional, more um, Western um, art art forms, or if it is through other cultural expressions, um, or emerging disciplines, arts disciplines, like all of that um, is reason why you are proud to live where you live in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And here at the Art Stays Here Coalition, we think that our culture is in crisis and at risk. That's why we're here having these conversations and seeing who all is involved. Can you talk about your action network? So we have two entities within us, right? So most people just know us as Mass Creative, and that's um, who we are. But that's a 501c3, so it's a nonprofit. That's like that's the most common nonprofit that people know about, and that's the one where if you give money to us, you can write it off on your taxes, right? Um, and that's where we hold all of our education and awareness and organizing work, right? We also know that and we believe that an essential tool in the toolbox for moving all of this work forward and really making sure that elected officials are engaged in our work is through lobbying. Right. And in Massachusetts, we have, for good reason, some of the strictest lobbying laws in the country. And so we have a 501c4, which is the Mass Creative Action Network. And that entity just according to the IRS means if you give us money, you're not going to get a tax deduction. But it also allows us to really lobby and engage with lawmakers to ask them for specific things. And so we follow all those rules. And that entity, that network is made up of a membership base, right? So anyone can join uh, there. In fact, all of our nonprofit organizational members are part of that C4. And it really is a way for us to 
both demonstrate that we have the backing of the creative sector and it gives us more flexibility in being able to do that lobbying work that is so crucial to match our advocacy efforts or our organizing efforts, I should say. For folks who don't know, can you give a little differential between what is advocacy versus what is lobbying? Advocacy is about raising awareness about an issue and sharing your support for that issue. And so advocacy could be talking about a program that your group is doing that is addressing homelessness and talking about why homelessness is, or frankly, housing insecurity is such an important thing, right? And you can talk to lawmakers about that issue. You can introduce them to folks. You can introduce them to artists who are facing displacement, which is obviously a different issue than homelessness, but you can share reports that you've done and the data that you've collected, and that all falls under the banner of advocacy, right? Lobbying is actually also advocacy, but it's a really specific, narrow part of it. And it's that moment when you walk up to a legislator or an elected official and you say, I support the Creative Sector Preservation Act. I believe this bill will do X, Y, and Z. Will you vote in favor of it? So you're asking for the elected official to take specific action on a specific bill or a specific choice that they have to make. Am I leaving anything out? I just think one of the other clear distinctions is if your organization is in a position to endorse a candidate for office. Right. So nonprofit organizations, if they've got the 501c3 designation, would not be able to do that. But with a C4, in theory, you could go out the next time there's a major campaign cycle and say, we want this person to be elected because they would be the greatest arts and culture champion for us in this cycle. Hmm. And and I will I will note that yes that's a possibility with a C4 Mass Creative to date has never endorsed a candidate our action network has never endorsed a candidate but again you know we that is that's another possibility I think there's a lot of like confusion around this issue Amy and I'm confused yeah <laughs> we uh, you uh, you can ask me a question we'll answer him. but I think one of the biggest places is is this piece about well 501c3s can't lobby they can't have anything to do that arts organization could never um, in a million years ask their lawmaker to vote one way or another in a bill and actually they can there's a provision in the law that says 501c3s can do what's quote unquote an incidental amount of lobbying. So if once a year your executive director calls the state rep where your organization is and says, I'd really like you to support a $2 million increase to state investments for arts and culture this in the state budget this year. That's considered lobbying. But so that it is, sounds like the difference is the specificity. Yeah, it's the specificity. So let's say, um, and is it all elected officials, meaning on the municipal level, like city councilors, so obviously mayors, yes, legislatures, absolutely. governors, anyone. Okay. Yep. And is the differential a vote on an on a particular thing or is it like i have a problem these artists just got this place can you help that's not lobbying okay yeah so if you, you i have a problem there are artists in your in your district that are facing eviction from a music rehearsal studio um can you help us um, that is not lobbying. that is advocacy that is that is absolutely advocacy if you say 
artists in your district are facing displacement, um, we have worked to file a bill that would prevent artists from being displaced. Um, you know, that they can't be displaced until 90 days after they've been told about the eviction or the the displacement. Um, Will you vote yes for that bill? That is lobbying. Got it. Yeah. Uh, I think that's also a really important piece. This just a highlight here. um, And I promise it relates. I don't know that I've met an elected official on the local, state or federal level who didn't get into this business because they want to because they want to help people. They all want to help people. They all believe in engaging with their folks who live in their district and making sure the needs of their district are being represented effectively. And so the more that they hear about what's happening in their communities that they serve and represent, the better they're able to do it. So that's why advocacy is so crucial crucial right it's almost like publicity yeah yeah it is it's except it's like human to human instead of like hearing it on a radio or newspaper or something absolutely absolutely and if i may too i'll step out for a moment as the comms person on our team if anyone listening has questions about the differences between advocacy and lobbying and if they have the ability to do one or both we do actually have a guide for this on our website so they can always look at masscreative.org and it's there for them so they can use it as a reference it's actually very clearly listed under resources for organizations so because this is really when we're talking about lobbying in this capacity we're really only talking about like organizations we're not talking about an individual if amy you're a private citizen you care about this issue you can talk to anybody for as much time as you want but if artsy is here as a nonprofit, that's a different story interesting these so i are there lobbying police um, like who yeah. who looks at all of that? Oh, I mean, the Secretary of State, Secretary Galvin, is like the is the one that you register as a, you know you have to register as a lobbyist if you're doing state lobbying work. And actually, in the city of Boston, you're also um, expected to register as a lobbyist. And you know, I think this is more about obviously these guidelines and rules are put into place to make sure that the process, which is really intended to make sure that individual citizens are able to engage and connect on things that are important to them, doesn't get confused and get gummed up with either, you know, over influence in terms of money and power. And so there's not an actual like lobbyist police who like drives around and is like, what are you doing? But there are rules, there are rules, there are laws that you're expected to follow. And if you run afoul of those laws and you make enough noise, somebody's going to point that out. You know, I think one of the things at the risk of this quote comes and bites me back in a couple of years. One of the things is, is that our issue when we're talking about the creative sector is so nonpartisan, right? Everyone benefits from a vibrant arts and cultural community, right? And there are folks in in the legislature in Massachusetts and frankly, nationally, that are um, members of, of both major political parties who strongly support a vibrant arts and cultural sector. So it, you know, because of that, right, because we're like a feel-good issue, which is nice to work in that space, there's a lot less chance that somebody would go after us to say, you know, oh, they didn't sign that form correctly. We always sign the forms correctly, mm-hmm. but that's where a lot of people run into trouble. Right. And you got to do it the right way, right? Well, thanks for uh, 
a that, deep dive for that, well, that, for that education i need to look at that guide yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe we can have an entire podcast conversation about the difference between advocacy and lobbying um that is we my could favorite have a mock conversation lobby we could have yeah or, we totally uh, could. okay how about the areas of advocacy that mass creative focuses on sure yeah so when we were founded again about a decade ago the sort of the number one our bread and butter was making sure that state investment in the creative community specifically the i would say the nonprofit creative community was increased and so the the largest one-time spending for arts and culture in Massachusetts is the annual budget, the state budget, and it's the spending line for the Mass Cultural Council, which is our state arts agency. So, and what is the annual budget at now? It is at $25 million. So as I mentioned, when we started, started, it it was at eight. So it has tripled thanks to collective organizing and advocacy around these issues. And also, there's been just an 11% increase over last year's budget. So it has tripled in the last 10 years, but we've seen a significant growth even in the last year alone. Yeah. A, thank you. Oh, hey, thank B, you. B, congratulations. <laughs> C, what does the Mass Cultural Council do with it? Yeah, so, um, so the Mass Cultural Council... I think a lot of people get us confused, but they are a completely separate entity. They are an independent state agency, which means they have their own board, and they are charged to distribute that money across the Commonwealth to support a vibrant, creative, and it's uh, arts, culture, the humanities, and the interpretive sciences. And so they take that money and they distribute it through their grant programs. What's really great in Massachusetts is that we really do live in a state that on the most part on the aggregate values the creative community and values creative expression. And so as an independent state agency, the Mass Cultural Council can make those grants um, to really meet the needs of the the creative community and the creative sector. How closely do you work? Does Mass Creative work with the MCC? Um, So when it comes to their state budget, we really follow their lead in terms of what they say they need that year. And we are really glad to support them and to, you know, the biggest piece of work that we've done in the last couple of years, I think we all know this, is making sure that when the state was deciding about how to spend recovery funding from the COVID pandemic, that money was being allocated to support the creative sector's recovery. And so we were actually able to put together um, a package that included $60 million that was distributed by the Mass Cultural Council and the Mass Humanities, which is our state agency focused on the humanities. And that money went to individual artists and creatives. It also went to local for-profit creative businesses. So we're not talking about a multi-global company, but we're talking about Frankly, you know, your mom and pop music venues that got hit really hard, really fast and needed help getting back up on their feet. And then it also went to nonprofit cultural organizations. We um, did an episode with uh, JJ. So you'll hear that. Oh, fantastic. At yeah. some point. What a fantastic organizer and advocate of herself. Well, how about just that whole campaign? Yeah. The national fantastic. campaign yeah. and the, the state of our what, stages. Yeah. So that that's um, I have my sights set on that. I see. I see. Oh, good. Good news. Well, we need that. Um, 
So, you know, we worked really closely with the Mass Cultural Council to make sure that when we were making those asks, that they were rooted in data that the Mass Cultural Council had collected, that they were helping us share stories that they knew of, of how the pandemic was affecting and impacting artists. We obviously have relationships with individual artists and organizations as well. We try to work as good neighbors and good partners. Great. Thanks. And um, tell us about Create the Vote. Oh, sure. So that is actually probably the project that put Mass Creative on the map way back when. You know, I think that there's a lot of, if we're talking about advocacy and we're talking about organizing, there's so many moments that are like these great opportunities to move your issue forward, right? And one of those opportunities is during elections. So you you might remember, Amy, that in 2013 or 2012, Mayor Menino announced he was not going to run for re-election which was pretty astonishing considering I think people thought he was going to be mayor for life. And so for the first time in a really long time, there was an open field. And frankly, the way Massachusetts politics work, when an incumbent chooses not to run for re-election, that's when there's this amazing opportunity for a lot of candidates to talk about what their vision of the city is going to be, and also for a lot of communities to really talk about what they want to see. And so we worked with um, advocacy leaders in Boston around uh, artists and cultural organizational leaders to make sure that every candidate who was running for mayor that year had heard from the creative community, had thought about what the creative community needed to be stronger and to be more inclusive, and then also had the opportunity and the platform to talk about their vision for Boston's creative community. So we do that literally three ways. One way is we have sit-downs with candidates running for office, and we curate representatives from that community's creative sector to talk about their perspectives on things, to offer up solutions or to answer any questions a candidate might have. Then the second thing we do is we provide a candidate questionnaire that every candidate who's running for office for that particular office is offered, and then we publicize and circulate their responses so that folks who are able to vote in that election can really see what that candidate is talking about. And then the third thing we do is we host public forums, which is just like a really great night, right? Like the thing that we have so totally down is like we can throw a joyful event. And so I think it's a pretty profound moment when candidates who are running for office who have been on that grueling campaign trail get to spend some time in a joyful event with people who are creative and then to really talk about both the challenges and the opportunities that are there. So we did that in 2013. We sold out the Paramount Theater at Arts Emerson's venue um, downtown with our forum. And at that, you know, uh, during his campaign for mayor, um, former mayor Marty Walsh made it clear that arts were a priority for him. And that message was heard loud and clear by all those people who came to that event as part of our Create the Vote campaign. So this is a program that we continue to run to this day. We actually did it last year statewide. Um, The most competitive race it felt like last year was for lieutenant governor. And so we held a forum in Worcester for candidates running for lieutenant governor. And we got to hear some amazing things from our current lieutenant governor, um, Kim Driscoll, about the work she'd done in Salem already and the work that she saw ahead of her for representing the creative sector. So the thing that's really great about that is, again, this isn't, we're not endorsing candidates. We're literally connecting people who care about an issue with candidates so that they know about that issue. 
Uh, do you also touch on getting people to register to vote and like just becoming civically engaged? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, in 2020, we've pivoted the campaign to do exclusively that. You know, I think something that sometimes we forget because we're too close to the issue is, is that for a lot of people, creative organizations um, and community artists are sources of real of like trusted information right and so if you get an email that's talking about something from an arts group that you care about you tend to believe it and so what we did is we worked with a group of organizations and um, coalitions that were working to share information about how to vote, right? If you remember back in 2020, there were so many ways you could vote, and those timelines were all different, and it felt really confusing. Um, And folks were really scared, right? We were all really scared to go in person to vote. And so we worked to do just a straight-up get-out-the-vote campaign, which was about how do you vote, when do you vote, and why why voting matters. Yeah, where do you vote? and why voting matters so much. And we did that in earnest before that, and we continue to make that a central part of that work. Well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, more people need to register, more people need to vote, more people need to be civically engaged. Absolutely, absolutely. And we also have to have a conversation about the fact that there are a lot of people in Massachusetts who are disenfranchised and who aren't able to vote. And so one of the things, frankly, with the Create the Vote campaign is we also work to find opportunities for folks who can't self-identify as a Massachusetts voter, but are members of the community and deserve to have their voices heard as well. Hmm. That could be its own podcast. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many great ideas you have, Amy. <laughs> just no, there's just so many night. things that need to be talked about. Yeah, that's true. What brought you to organizing? What are some of the challenges to organizing? Okay, so um, I... Because you used to work in theater. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I... This is one of my favorite stories. So I do this work because of a parking garage. So right out of college, I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, and started working for a theater down there, a regional theater. It's the Actors Theater of Louisville. At the time, it was sort of like a Huntington or an ART. And I, I worked there for about a decade. And much like ART in Huntington, Actors Theater was this like cultural anchor institution. Like people, like just, it was part of the DNA of the city. And as a, part of its mission was to produce new plays and to make sure that voices within the city of Louisville were really heard. And it did that really, really well. And so we're plugging along, right? We have this beautiful building and we have, as part of it, a revenue generating parking garage, right? Turns out that parking is a really solid investment for arts groups, like never goes out of fashion and everything's great. And the the other thing that people care a lot about in Louisville is college ball, basketball. So the UofL cards, Cardinals, needed a new basketball arena. And so, you know, the city is scouting different locations and they identify a property right across the street from the theater. I promise I'm getting to my point. Um, but, you know, they're like, they're gonna, we're going to build this beautiful arena. And so as part of the due diligence, the city does a traffic study. And they discover that based on the estimates of how much traffic is going to come in, they have to like change the direction and they have to close off some of the streets around the arena. Not just when events are happening, but like permanently. And turns out that their plan for that includes blocking off access to our parking garage from cars and also that 
that cars wouldn't drive past our building anymore. And that's a huge problem, right? Visibility goes way down. And frankly, a big chunk of revenue just disappeared. And at that Never moment, mind access to parking. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, everybody needs to park, even the people going to the Yum Center. So... This was like a weird politicizing moment for young Emily Ruddick, which was I had this moment where I was like, hold on a tick. This is a valued and like cherished arts organization that is part of what makes living in Louisville a great thing. But when city leaders are making decisions about what might affect the city and that arts organization, they don't include them in the process. So we were never notified. We like literally found out because of like a public posting about it. And for me, that was like this moment to be like, wait, we we need to make sure that at that intersection of policy making and decision making, there are people talking about the needs of the creative community. And so I actually went back to school. I got a degree. I got a master's in public administration focusing on policy and really sort of um, was like my dream job is to move back to Massachusetts and run an organization that is focused on advancing the needs of the creative community. So, you know, I think I moved back to Massachusetts a a couple of years later, got to run Mass Creative. And so it's like a dream. But so that's what brought me to to the work. And what what do I like most about Oregon? What are the challenges? Oh, what are the challenges? Yeah. You know, I think there's two things that Kelsey and I were talking about in the car. The first one is that whether they mean to or not, oftentimes when we're talking about politics with a lowercase p and we're talking about government, it's a really confusing process, right? Like it's not easy to know how things work or even like, you know, if you say, if you say, I want to fight artist displacement, well, how do you go about doing that if we're talking about elected officials? Is that about we need to pass a law or we need to move money or, you know, it's kind of unpacking that can feel really overwhelming. And so I think for a lot of people, and then, you know, just to also say, like, a lot of our spaces are, were intentionally not designed to be welcoming to the diversity of the Commonwealth, right? There are literal physical access challenges. There are spaces where historically a lot of people weren't cared for, right? Or, or welcome. Or welcome, absolutely. And so I think for a lot of folks, they kind of say, like, there's no point. Right. Like this isn't going to make a difference and it's too hard and it's too hostile a space. I don't want to engage. And so I get that. And I think one of the biggest things that we try to work on and why we care so much about that education component is helping people crack the code, helping people figure out how to hold their voices. And and for us, a lot of times it's us supporting people as they're doing that work and making sure they know they have an ally um, in that space and in that work. You know, I often say whether, you know, it's I'm joking, but like I can be the most charming person in the world, but I'm only one voter in Massachusetts. And so it's not as effective and as successful if I just run around the state house talking to legislators. But when we make sure that folks across Massachusetts are mobilized and organized to have those conversations, it makes a much bigger difference. Um, so that's the biggest challenge, I would say. What was the other one? Yeah, well, this isn't the other one that we talked about on the oh. drive over, but I was just feeling inspired by your response. Something else we talk about amongst our team is also convincing 
people in the sector that organizing ought to happen year-round and consistently, mm-hmm. and giving people the tools to be able to do that in ways that make sense or work for them, given their professions and where they live, but just allowing more people to understand that we can't just mobilize when the budget is upon us and the budget has been slashed or, you know, hopefully um, the budget has increased and we're celebrating it, that there's a lot of quiet organizing that needs to happen months in advance of that, those interpersonal meetings with legislators to convince them of the value of the sector that will ultimately lead to those wins. And how we get there is, I think, through the continued training and education that we're already doing, but just reminding people over and over again that this needs to happen all the time, not just once in a while. Can you talk about the different regions within Massachusetts? So we are in Boston. We We are are in greater Boston. But there's a whole state out there. Yeah. And how you work with the whole. Yeah. So that's interesting, right? Because there's like, depending on what government agency you're allied with, there's a lot of ways to carve up the Commonwealth into regions. And a lot of people have a lot of opinions about which region they live in, in Massachusetts. So like, you know, the big joke of people who live in Boston think that Western Mass starts at like the edge of 95, right? When in fact, like if you... (laughs) in Worcester. You do not live in Western Mass. You live in Central Mass, right? Yes. And so Massachusetts has, we've got Boston, we've got the greater Boston area. We also have these two really fascinating regions, the Cape and Islands and the Berkshires, that are by literal definition, federal definition, considered rural communities. And they have similar tourism economies that that hold a lot of their economy together, but they also have, there's fisheries and there are farms, right? And those rural communities also have artists in them and arts organizations. And so it's interesting, right? Because they're on either side of the Commonwealth, but they actually have a lot in common when it comes to the their policy needs. And what's really great is that both, both of the legislators, like sets of legislators who represent the Berkshires and parts of Western Mass and then the Cape and Islands, they are the ones, I would say, in the legislature who can so quickly rattle off the communal and economic benefits of the creative sector. They know in their hearts why arts matter more than any other group I've then ever seen. Then we need them to train the <laughs> ones in Greater Boston. Sure. Well, but that is not about... They didn't get trained by legislators. They were engaged with incredible advocates in those communities who built these unbelievable relationships with them. Over well, they're time. also seeing the direct mm-hmm. economic impact of absolutely. arts and culture in absolutely. those areas. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we've got those regions. We also have the South Coast, which includes um, Dartmouth. Yeah, I was about to say, I feel like I'm Fall River. stepping into a minefield where I'm going to like not name everybody, but Fall River, New Bedford. What's really great is to see both in Fall River and New Bedford especially, there has been this just unbelievable organized effort to build out and support their arts and cultural community and the artists who live there. And frankly, I would say their local elected officials, again, they just understand why this matters. And it's it's made a huge difference. And we're seeing some really fantastic work coming out of those communities. We have north of Boston and the North Shore, right? You've got places like Lynn and Salem. Um, and then we've got the Merrimack Valley, right? And then that moves us over to Central Mass and North Central Mass where Fitchburg is. and For such a, a small state, there's a lot 
to go on. <laughs> there is. Yes, we should all be like employed by the Massachusetts Office of Tourism and Travel. And one of the things that I really loved is, yes, the needs of artist communities in urban spaces tend to be somewhat different than those of the needs of artists in rural communities. However, there are artists and arts organizations and historic spaces everywhere in the Commonwealth. And I think one of the things that we really love about our work is getting to spend time with passionate um, leaders in those regions who are deeply interested and deeply engaged in making sure that their legislators come along with them on that journey. A shout out to Julie Wake, who runs the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod on the Cape. She um, she worked with us on a Create the Vote campaign when now Senator Sear was running for office. And through that work, she has continued to gather leaders of cultural organizations on the Cape on a regular basis. And part of their work is twice a year, they have sit downs with the entire Cape delegation. I love that. And they talk about what's needed. They talk about what the opportunities are. And what's really great is a couple, maybe a year ago, Julie emailed me and she said, hey, the delegation called me because they want to schedule the meeting. And then we, as a resource, we can talk with Julie and say, here are the things that we're working on. You know, if you're interested in this, you can talk about this today. You know, she'll come and say, we're really worried about this issue we we you know we can sort of help we can do some technical assistance but that work is largely led by julie her organization and other key leaders on the cape who continue to meet as a unified group and i think that's the key here is is like you know julie could just meet on her own right chris mccarthy who runs the provincetown art association and museum she could just meet with them on her own and talk about the needs of no there's strength in numbers but they come together and they talk about what it looks like if the whole sector advances well that's because the sector is also an ecosystem yeah and you know you don't just go to a movie theater or just the ballet or just the theater or a concert the whole thing works together if you care about the arts you usually care about a good amount of them. So I feel like the biggest aha moment that I had personally as an executive director and as a passionate arts advocate was musicians don't really worry about the IRS charitable status of an organization when they're going to go play in a venue. And similarly, for the most part, if a band I really like is playing in the Lynn Auditorium, I'm not going to say like, oh, no, no, I only go to for-profit Live Nation venues, right? Like, we don't care about those. The consumption doesn't care. Yes. And so for us, we've been thinking a lot about, like, if that's the case, right, and our job is to make sure that the needs and the interests of the entire ecosystem are being heard. And some parts of the ecosystem are much more effective already in that work and don't need our help quite as much and other parts do and so I think we really look at our work too is about making sure that the whole is considered as opposed to just a part. We at the coalition have been talking about regional ecosystems so I'm sure that you're familiar with what MAPC is doing and obviously you're just talking about the Cape and the islands and that being regional and we're talking about Greater Boston as our region and if you live in Greater Boston whether you live in Somerville you might rehearse in Cambridge you might live in Cambridge and rehearse in Boston you might live in Boston and rehearse in Somerville and all the venues and all the restaurants and all the recording studios and everything that's part of the creative ecosystem 
we consume it and participate in it as one. Right. Yet, when we're trying to do advocacy and work with municipalities, everything is different. Zoning is different. Funding is different. Development is different. Whether or not you have a mayor or a town manager, whether or not you have a city council, I, you know, all of these things are different from city to city to city. So we're looking forward to working with MAPC, who will also be here to do a podcast and talk about their work and how to look at it as one creative ecosystem. So we love working with MAPC and the the head of their arts and culture practice, Anna Sangupta, is just, she's fantastic. And one of the things that I think they have done so effectively is that they are like these amazing technicians, right? Like they can go in and help on the municipal level, a group solve those zoning challenges and sort of talk and really talk about like, here's how we're going to go in like a surgeon and fix the thing that's stopping you from doing what you want to do. And you're right. You know, in Massachusetts is really fascinating, right? Like we are 300 and 51 cities and towns. Oh, I got it. Kelsey's like nodding her head and she's so proud of me. And unlike other states that have really strong county governments that also in some cases, Amy, provide that regional governance structure, we really don't have them. I mean, like technically we have counties, but we don't have county government the way that like Washington state has county government or Colorado has county government. And so we go from like just like the statewide lens where it's everybody's being considered in the same way to this hyper, hyper local conversation that requires the translation that MAPC does so well between all of those cities and towns. You know, there's frankly, uh, MAPC is one of a couple of different planning councils that are really focused on city and town planners and making sure that they have the resources they need. And it's really exciting to see how the ripple effect of how because MAPC stood up a arts and culture practice, that there are other planning councils that are doing similar work. So the thing that's also interesting, right, is like, as you pointed out, right, like the zoning that's happening in Cambridge is different than the zoning that's in Somerville is different than, you know, how the percent art for our program works in Cambridge or in Boston. That's one of the things that I sort of love about um, some of the legislation that we're working on is is about um, looking at how can we kind of have statewide accepted definitions for some of this work that we want to do. We're never going to get to a place where the cities and towns are going to agree on like unified zoning ordinances. Like that's just not that's not the way people want to live. They want to live in their their hyperlocal communities. But when we're talking about just literally the definition of what a creative space is, being able to say like, well, this is what the state says it is. Um, so let's let's agree across Boston, Somerville, and Cambridge that we're all going to talk about that in the same way. That is one of those places where state legislation at that level can really help move this conversation forward on a local level. Well, why don't you tell us about the bill? Oh, yeah, sure. Perfect intro. I love that. So in the fall of 2022, many of us felt like we could take a bit of a breath and be like, oh, that was a lot. And we knew at Mass Creative that um, we needed to put together some asks to the legislature and to the governor that were moving beyond 
COVID recovery and relief, right? We we kind of knew like the federal money had been moved forward. There really wasn't more out there. And so we embarked on, frankly, a lot of conversations. So we did a tour. We did our community policy input tour where we visited 11 regions of the Commonwealth. We met online with folks. We also had a survey and we asked basically like two questions. What's the pain point? Like, where are you? Where where are you the most scared in terms of your practice or in terms of your business? And what do you feel like are possible solutions that you're excited to advocate for? Right. And so we did that work. And through that work, we developed the creative sector agenda, which is a series five bills that really come from that ecosystem you're talking about. It comes from folks who are saying, these are the things we need to move forward. And you can check out all of that on our website. But the one that we're talking about today is the Creative Space Preservation Bill. And I want to say, Amy, in a large part, you know, we heard through all of those meetings that there needed to be some attention on the displacement of artists and cultural groups. But it was largely the work that you and others on the coalition did that made us feel like this was the right time to work on this bill, that there had been the issue that public education advocacy that we were just talking about had reached a level where enough people understood what the problem was and enough people were interested in finding some solutions. What is your description of the problem? I mean, gosh, there's a lot, right? But I think we know that living in Massachusetts is not cheap. Working in Massachusetts is not cheap. And that across Massachusetts, the ability to find space to create to do your artistic practice are disappearing. You know, one of the things that's really interesting is that at the beginning, right at the beginning of the pandemic, we started talking with groups that arts groups who didn't own their own spaces. Right. And they, so they had no control over how they could keep their staff safe or even if they could co- go into the office. Right. That wasn't their decision. And in fact, you know, in a couple of cases, some groups were told, yes, reopening has happened, but you won't be able to perform in this venue for another two years because we're not renting it out to outside groups, right? So all of a sudden, that pressure point, both for individual artists and then also for cultural organizations, was really felt for those that didn't have permanent you know, spaces that they owned. And I don't think the answer is to own all the spaces, right, individually, but um, it, it really feels like there's a need to make sure that not just that artists can afford to live in our communities. And frankly, the issue of affordable and economically accessible housing is not one that's limited to the creative sector. Everyone in Massachusetts, for the most part, feels that pain. But the piece about just literally doing the work, your job, is now being halted because of lack of spaces. So that's for us where we see that challenge and what that problem really is. And we were also seeing that There are some cities and towns that were trying to figure out a way to fix that. And A, we were like, oh, we should sort of bring that model in. And then B, that there needed to be some of that uniformity. So 
we developed this bill and to be really clear i think the answer to the displacement of artists and cultural organizations there's not a magic one shot here right it's going to take private money it's going to take new ways of thinking about space and property ownership that maybe look more like cooperatives it's going to take local and state intervention um, that could in some ways subsidize um, the transition of ownership of properties to coalitions from private individual owners, property owners. So there's a lot there, right, that you all are working to unpack. But this bill will lay the groundwork, and it seems so nerdy and technical. It will establish an actual statewide definition for what creative space is, and it will create a mechanism that will allow cities and towns to establish a holding tank for any money or property they receive that go towards the creation and preservation of creative spaces. Like most laws and policies that are out there, this is not an original idea, right? In fact, it's pulling from how land conservation environmentalists work to do land conservation and open space. And it also pulled from housing advocates who worked on policy to create affordable housing trust funds. But it's sort of pulling some of those best ideas. And this will just lay the groundwork. This is phase one on the state level so that we're all talking in the same way and that those cities and towns have that tool in their tool belt. So how can people learn more about that and or engage or support that? Yeah. So go to our website. I promise we have lots of information. We have fact sheets. We also have if you want to endorse the bill, um, if you're like, I feel extremely passionately about this issue, we want to know about that. And when you endorse the bill, your name or your organization's name is listed as a supporter of the bill. And then we're going to make sure that you get all of the updates to say, hey, this action needs to be taken. You're really passionate about this. You're probably the best person to take this action. There was a hearing on Monday, September 18th for the bill up at the State House. And so we're working with folks right now who will have testified at that hearing. And testimony is basically talking about why you support the bill to the committee. And the more people who either show up to testify or submit written testimony, the better, because when the committee makes a decision about what to do with that bill, are they going to move it forward and say, yes, we approve of it, it should move on to the next step, or no, we don't, we're going to send it to study, and then we're never going to hear about it again. They consider how many people took the time to share their support for that bill. And so that's why that's so important. And the good news is you can submit written testimony anytime up until when the committee makes a decision about what to do with that bill. Which is when? Yes, this is getting really, really wonky, wonky here. That's what you say in unison. There's this arbitrary deadline the legislature uses called Joint Rule 10, and that's on February 7th of 2024. So that is the date when all of the committees will need to report on the bills that they are reviewing somehow. They could give it a favorable report, so it moves on to the next round, or they send it to study, which is a very polite way of killing it for Mm -hmm. the session. So there's enough time. We have the whole fall and winter. Well, so the catch is, and this gets back to my earlier point about making sure that we are consistently reaching out to our legislators and consistently organizing around these bills, is that the committee could report out this bill any time between now and then, but that's the hard and fast deadline. Okay. 
likely wouldn't be until deeper into the winter, but just something for anyone listening to keep in mind that even after the hearing has passed, they should still contact their legislators, encourage them to co-sponsor the bills. As Emily said, there are more resources you can find on the bill on our website, including fact sheets. And by the time this is coming out, we'll have also hosted a press conference in Worcester. Or, sorry, we're hosting a separate press conference in Worcester. <laughs> we're doing two press conferences in the next week on two different bills. Um, but for the Creative Space Preservation Act, we will have hosted a press conference in Boston. Um, so they'll be able to find more media hits and more resources to explain what the bill is all about on our website. Well, first, I just want to say thank you for you know doing the survey and outreaching to people and asking people where their pain point was. Mm-hmm. Not surprised to hear that cultural space and places to practice your creative practice was uh, on that list. And thank you for taking up the bill. I also want to give a shout out and a public thank you to the bill sponsors. So that's Senator Liz Miranda, who is a Boston-based rep, and uh, Senator Dan Cahill, who's from Lynn. And, you know, in both cases, they have communities that have seen enormous amounts of development and change as to how arts groups can be a part, you know, and can stay in their districts. Um, And we're just really glad that they are both on board for this. um, Well, we can also um, shout out uh, Liz Miranda because she was um, the state rep with Humphrey Street Studios, our baby, our preservation baby. (laughs) Um, So I'm glad to hear that her support continues. Yeah, and that's how you make an arts champion, is you keep finding ways to engage them in the work. On behalf of Mass Creative, you're most welcome. But most importantly, like this is an opportunity. We're interested in creating opportunities. And so that opportunity is only as good as how many folks engage and endorse and work on this with us. And frankly, give us feedback. I've already heard the feedback like that doesn't seem like it's doing anything. And it's like, well, yeah, this is a multi-year process. And one of the things you have to start somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And one of the reasons that we actually kind of went this route is that there's no money attached to this bill, which oftentimes makes it a lot easier to move through the legislature. Right. Because you're not they're not they don't have to make hard spending decisions. Um, And so we're hoping that because that's the way we've shaped the bill, it can move us forward. We get a nice win in there. Um, It gives it momentum for when you go back to ask for money. Okay, exactly. (laughs) Right. So you're planting the seeds. You're planting the seeds. That's what advocacy and organizing is, right? It is about planting a lot of seeds and spreading a lot of seeds and waiting sometimes a really long time, but waiting and continuing to do that day in and day out work to make sure that your your issue is moving forward. What would you tell artists or musicians whose workspace is at risk? You got to get involved. You kind of have a choice, right? You can kind of put your hands up and say, wave the white flag and not do anything. And most likely, you are going to be starting to look for practice spaces farther and farther out and farther, farther away from where you want to live. And frankly, the music community you want to be a part of. Or you get involved. I think every single major issue in Massachusetts that we could track back is because people who were being deeply affected by the issue, whether it was affordable, accessible health care, whether it was the right to marry, people who were being affected by that issue stood up and got to work and advocated. And I would say that there in Boston is an amazing group. 
arts stay here that they can plug into and that, you know, we're here. We're here. I'm saying there's a lot of favorites, but one of like a highlights is when we're able to connect people to each other um, for greater impact and and to start building out that that advocacy work. Well, we at Art Stays Here want to thank Mass Creative, not only for being here and uh, talking about advocacy and lobbying, for filing the bill, for getting people together, for your work on behalf of the sector. I'm sure that this is only part one of many more conversations, so stay tuned. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you feel is important to say before we sign off? (laughs) I would just encourage listeners to look at the rest of our creative sector agenda, too. As Emily mentioned earlier, there are five bills we're working on this session, and we're very grateful to partner with some really great legislative champions, but also many organizations and individuals who have already come out in support of these bills. They address a number of issues beyond the loss of creative space concern. Um, So again, I would go to masscreative.org. You'll find a section on our website to be able to look at the full policy agenda and see more ways to get involved. Great. Thank you. Well, we'll um, have you back and we'll talk about those other policy areas and other bills and other ways that folks can get off the couch and get involved. I love it. Thanks, Amy. Thanks to you all. Thanks for listening to the Art Stays Here podcast series, Culture Crisis Conversations. You can listen to all of the episodes from our website, artstayshere.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our partners, New Alliance Audio, New Alliance East, and The Record Co. And thank you for the funding from Boston's Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture. Join the movement at artstayshere.org.